you can be opening up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We'll be in chapter 4 today, and I hope you're enjoying this study. Uh, it's been going on, I guess, for about a quarter now, or maybe a little longer, and we'll be continuing for a little while. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, and <coughs> excuse me. In his epistle, uh, in the letter, Paul, Paul is... Uh, is, has been expressing his concern for them, right? Uh, opposing those uh, teachings that the Gentiles must be circumcised and they must keep the law, the Judaizing teachers, right? We see this over and over in, in the writings of Paul, especially in the letter to the churches in Galatia. They are getting pounded by Judaizing teachers coming and saying, if you, even though you are now a believer in Christ, you still have to keep the law. You still, you're still under the law. You still have to be circumcised. And Paul is opposing this vehemently. He's telling them, no, we are not under the law. And we're going to talk a lot about that today and, and talk about how that is, has changed. And it's something that we, we may not understand fully and perhaps we'll be able to grasp that a little better today. He's, we see where Paul is making three, well, he's going to make five arguments basically contending that we are justified by faith in Christ, not under the law by our faith in Christ. And we've seen him make three of these arguments so far. First of all was the personal argument. Let's turn back over to chapter 3 there and see again what he said about that. Chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1, <clears throat> he said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, he's saying, this is a personal thing. It's not about keeping the law. This is the Spirit that's been given to you because of your faith in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with the law. You don't have to keep that law. We can't keep it. It's of the flesh anyways. And in the flesh, it cannot be kept. So he's telling him, we have that, that argument there. You've been given the Spirit. Did you receive that Spirit because of the law? No. You received that Spirit because of your faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have the Scripture on. Read on, beginning in verse uh, 6 there. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. You see, this was the plan from the beginning before the law was even given. He's telling Abraham, You're, through you, through your faith, this is how the nations will be blessed. Those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Wow, for it is written, cursed, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You can't do them. You're cursed. You're under curse if you are trying to only keep the law. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Wait a minute, let's read that again. Christ has redeemed us 
from the curse of the law. Oh, so we were cursed under the law. Now we've been redeemed from it. How so? Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's that Spirit that he gave through our faith again. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, after Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words, the inheritance came through the promise that God gave to Abraham through his faith. Had nothing to do with the law. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to, to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Notice that. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law was there to guide us, to show us, to point to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're not under the law. We are, ha we are under the promise that God gave to Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Then we have the practical argument, right? The practical argument that says, beginning in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Alright, so we have this promise that was given to Abraham. Paul is saying that law that was given 400 some odd years later to Moses was your tutor, was your guide, was what brought you up, raised you up to know about God, to know what truth was, to know what right and wrong were. But that wasn't the end all. That wasn't the end to the means, right? The promise was given to Abraham because of he believed in God. That same promise is given to you because you believe, you have faith, you've put on Christ in baptism. Therefore, you are now a son of God. All right, we've used that phrase a lot, right? We are now sons of God. Well, wait a minute. We're not the son of God. No. 
Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ was God. We're not God. We're not gods. Not saying that. Don't get confused on that. We're going to talk about what he means by all that today. What exactly is he talking about to say we are adopted sons of God? As we begin the fourth chapter, Paul's going to continue with that practical argument. Under the law, they were simply heirs apparent. What's an heir apparent? You know, we, we don't have kings and queens here in the U.S., or supposedly we don't. I don't know. Some might debate that now. But maybe like in the U.K. where they have a king and a queen and a prince. The prince is like the heir apparent, right? He's the heir in waiting, okay? When the king, queen dies, the prince gets the inheritance, right? The prince, I guess, you know, he's going to become king, but he also gets all the spoils or the estate, I guess is the best word, right? And you can think of that in your families, right? If you're the heir to, if you're the, I guess, you're supposed, in the old days it was the oldest. Now it's not so much. If the oldest got it all, the rest of the family is going to, have a hissy fit. But you understand that, right? The children are the heir apparent to what the parents are going to leave. And that's what he's saying. Under the law, you were just heirs apparent. You had not received the inheritance yet. Sure, as believers, as the people of God, you knew about that God. You knew about the inheritance. You knew about his love for you, but you didn't fully understand what was to happen, perhaps. You knew there was this supposed Messiah to come that you thought was going to be the king here on earth. And it didn't turn out that way exactly. But that's what he's saying. Now, in Christ Jesus, they have become actual heirs. All right. Interesting point, right? But that's what he's saying. That's kind of what he's talking about when you are an adopted son of God. You were an heir apparent before, now you're an actual heir. Let's read on, beginning in chapter 4 there. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, <clears throat> does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Hmm. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. All right. Interesting seven verses there. What exactly does that mean, right? He says in verse 1, You were a child. Under the law, you were still a child. An heir, yet no different than a slave. What's he talking about there? Well, did a slave have an inheritance? No. Did a slave have any hope of becoming a master? Well, I guess they might could have been appointed or something. But no, in the genealogy of the family, the slave was not part of that. The slave had no hope of becoming a master. The slave had no hope 
of receiving an inheritance. And the child was the same way. Even though the child was going to eventually, if he lived to adulthood, be able to be an heir apparent, you might say, he was just like a slave. He didn't know. He had to be taught. He had to understand. He had to live under a tutor, a guide. He had to understand the elements of the world, the first principles, the elementary teachings. He had to understand what it meant to eventually be an heir apparent. He was a master, you might say, because he was part of that family that was the, the master's family, right? Yet still under a guardian, still under a tutor. In other words, they were in bondage under these elements of the world because they weren't ready to become a master. They weren't ready to receive this inheritance. <clears throat> Therefore, they were under guard. They were treated as children. In other words, under the law, they were treated as being under a tutor, as being infants, you might say, toddlers. In the UK, from what I've read anyways, a prince, you know, the queen really doesn't raise her kids, right? They have nannies, right? Tutors. They send them, they have somebody come in and teach them. Queen doesn't have time for that, right? That's what we're talking about here. The law was your tutor, your nanny. And even though you were heirs apparent because you were chosen of God, you did not have a full actual inheritance. You were not an actual heir. You are not truly a son of God. Interesting concept, right? They were under guard. They were kept under guard by the law. The law had been their tutor, schoolmaster. The word he uses is a Greek word, pedagogus, meaning a guardian. And that name was applied to trustworthy slaves in the Old Testament times. Slaves who would have been nannies or tutors for the children or the sons of the masters. That's what it's referring to. So that's what he's talking about. The law was that kind of thing. The law was a tutor. That was their condition under the law of Moses. But what changed? Well, now they, us, are sons of God through the adoption that we have through our faith in Christ. We're not God. We're not the son of God. But we now are actual heirs of what? The promise that was given to Abraham. They're no longer under tutor. The law had served its purpose. Now it's called to be justified by faith. Now they are sons of God through their faith in Jesus Christ. And of course we read there in verse 27 of chapter 3, that's occurred, that we became that when we put on Christ in baptism. All right? They received that adoption as sons of God. And verse 4 and 5 of chapter 4, they've been redeemed by the Son sent by his Father. Interesting how he says there in verse 4 <coughs> that this uh, was the fullness of time. What did he mean by that exactly? Fullness of time. Well, in the beginning, we read in John 1, there was the Word, right? The Word was God, was with God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among men, verse 14. That was the fullness of time. It was part of God's plan. 
in his plan, he knew when the right time would be to bring a son into the world. We don't understand that. We don't know exactly what constituted that being the proper time to bring Jesus into the world. I've heard things over time, you know, well, that was the Romans now had created these roads all over Europe and it was easy to travel. So the word could spread, and maybe that's true. That's part of it, I'm sure. But God had a plan from the beginning. And now it was time to bring his son so those who would believe Jew and Gentile could be true heirs of the promise of Abraham, the promise that he'd made several hundred years before. Interesting concept, right? To the Jews, that's blowing their mind, right? It is blowing their mind. Wait a minute. We've been thinking about this promise of a kingdom here on earth that you're going to provide some time, some point, and now you're telling us that this Jesus Christ guy was what that all pointed to? Yeah. And not only was it for you Jews, he did it for the Gentiles too. That promise that he made to Abraham has come true. It's part of the plan. In the fullness of time, at the right time, he came in. So those who believe would be able to have salvation, be redeemed, and become sons of God. In other words, we have now received that spirit in the hearts by whom allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. And that's an interesting phrase, right? Abba being the Syriac language or the version of Father. Syriac was language of Syria, kind of a, I think it was a precursor to Aramaic or similar to Aramaic, right? It's where did you use and he's, and he's saying that because it's for the Jews and the Gentiles. That's why that phrase is used by Paul over and over, right? This God sent his son that they might have faith and they might be able to say, Abba, Father. Turn over to Romans 8. You see what he said about that there. Romans 8 and verse 12. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Wait a minute, let me read that again. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. In that context, he's saying, you are not living by the flesh anymore. You are living by the Spirit, the Spirit that's been poured out on you. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage, Again, to fear, a fear of death, no doubt. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Because of your faith, you're no longer slave to sin. You're no longer bondage in bondage to sin, bondage to the flesh. You now have the Spirit of God. And that Spirit works with your spirit 
to show you are truly a son of God. That's an amazing concept, right? Yeah, we don't even think about that, do we? We, we go through our lives, we don't think about the fact that we have a spirit, and that spirit's working with God's spirit to do wonders in this world. And that we have a hope of an inheritance through that promise that was made to Abraham. We don't think about that stuff. Maybe we should. Maybe that's something that ought to be on the forefront of our minds more often. Maybe that's something you ought to dwell on every morning when you get out of bed. First thing is I have a promise. I'm an heir. An heir of the creator of the universe. Abba Father. Therefore, we have every privilege. We have every right to the promises of God. We have every, I'm trying to think of a good word, everything that an heir would have, right? We have that hope. Being redeemed, being glorified with Christ eventually. We do not receive the spirit of bondage. They were no longer slaves, but were now adopted sons. And think about the people he's writing to there. You know, at the time, you were pretty much either a master or a slave. In the first century, right? There wasn't really a middle class. You either had wealth, you had land, whatever, and you had slaves that worked it. That's the way it worked. But he's telling these people, the slaves, those who believe, you're now an heir of the creator of the universe. Think about what that was to them. It probably doesn't mean it the same way to us as it did to them because they're saying, wait a minute, I can be an heir? I can be a child of God? That's an interesting concept perhaps to them, right? Think about that. That's interesting, right? They've been moved from being slaves to adopted sons. Now have the Spirit of God bestowed upon them. I want to spend a minute on this concept of Abba Father. What exactly does that mean, right? What is one of the great privileges that we have as sons of God, as heirs to the promises? Well, think about you when you were a child. You had a problem. What did you do about it? Well, you might, I don't know, maybe you kind of sulked and went to your room and just sulked about it. But you needed some help, right? Who would you go to first and right away? Your mom or dad, right? You might have even been so worked up about it that you cried out, Dad, Mom, I need some help. Did you ever do that? That's kind of what we're talking about right here. We have that privilege to go right in the throne room and speak to God, our Father, Abba. What a concept. Do you do that every day? Why not? Do you, did, when you were a kid, did you talk to your parents every day? Hopefully. Or, or was it, you know, when you get home from school and say, how was your day? Great. And then you went to your room. I don't know. Maybe you did that. But you have a wonderful privilege there. That's what he's talking about. It's not the law anymore. 
you're part of the family. You have a right as a child of God. And that's what it's about. He loves you, you love him, you have that personal relationship with him. And now you live your life out of your love for him because of what he's done for you. Interesting concept. I want to illustrate that a little bit. You know, when we pray, generally, the first thing we say is, you know, we praise, we praise, go to our Father, right? We say our Father. We praise our Father. We honor our Father. And then we ask him things, right? We ask him for help. We ask for help for ourselves, our families, our brethren, our nation, our world. We do all these things because he is the Father, our true God. Turn over to 2 Chronicles. I want to read a exa good example of this and what we mean exactly by this. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And just read on with me a bit. <clears throat> Many of you remember King Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, one of the few good kings of the southern kingdom. And this is going to be during his reign here. And beginning in verse 1, I'm just going to read what's about to happen here. He says, It happened after this that the people of Moab and the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are, and he's on Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared. He was afraid. And set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Here we have King Jehoshaphat. He's got three big old nation states, whatever you call them, heading his way ready to do battle. And you know, I don't know how big those armies, but it's at least three to one probably, right? Maybe more. He's scared. I would be too, right? What am I going to do? Good King Jehoshaphat, first thing he does is what? Abba, Father. He didn't use those words necessarily, but he turned to God. First thing, before he planned out a strategy, before he went to his generals, his army, and he said, Judah, turn toward the God. Let's go fast. We got to get ready. We got to get, we got to petition our God, or we're going to be annihilated. Turn over to Jeremiah there. Read something else. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32, and let's begin verse 16. And notice the wording that Jeremiah uses here. It's going to be similar. Verse 16, he says, <clears throat> and of course, Jeremiah is the great lamenter, right? The great, the great weeper, weeping prophet. 
Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Nera, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Abba, Father, first thing, you show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children. After them, the great, the mighty God, who is the name, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the Son of Man, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. First thing, Jeremiah's got to go tell the Israelites, you ain't doing what God wanted, he's going to judge you. Right? But the first thing he does is he praises God for who he is. Abba Father, the creator of the universe, the doer of all things points out the greatness of God. That's what we're talking about here. We as sons of God can go straight to that God and point out, we understand who you are, the greatness that you have, the love you have for us, Abba Father. Turn back to 2 Chronicles there. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Sorry. Go back to chapter 20. Let's read on about what happened with good King Jehoshaphat after he turned toward God when his enemies were approaching Verse 5, then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Sounds like Jeremiah, doesn't it? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham? <clears throat> your friend forever, and they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in the temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Wow. Abba Father, right? And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. In other words, when you gave us the land, we didn't hurt these people. We didn't bother them. But here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. Didn't say a few. Didn't say one or two. All of them. Even the little ones and the wives. And when you read that in the Old Testament, that means everybody. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Medaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said... Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. They're fighting against God, not you. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. 
What? Let me read that again. You will not need to fight in this battle. What? Position yourself. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. What? Wait a minute. They're not going to have to fight? God's just going to take care of it? How's it going to happen? World's read on. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. He humbled himself. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel. The voice is loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Syria, they helped to destroy one another. Jehoshaphat didn't really have to do a thing but just believe in God and pray to God. And what did God do? He confused them all and they fought each other. <laughs> it sounds like a, you know, the old Keystone Cops. You remember those shows back when you were little? That's what that sounds like. They, he raised them up and they fought each other instead of fighting the Israelites. Sounds crazy, don't it? But see what happens when you turn toward God, first and foremost. Abba, Father. So when Judah came to place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there, there were their dead bodies falling on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days, three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place was called the valley of Baraka until this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, with Jehoshaphat in front of them, to go back to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries. When they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. I, I, I know that's a lot. You may be saying, well, what's the point? Jehoshaphat said, Abba, Father. He knew who his God was. He turned to him immediately when he was in fear. He was afraid. When he was being attacked, or intimately being attacked. Think about that. If God would provide for him, if God would confuse his enemies so much that they'd fight each other, what's he going to do for you? Abba, Father. That should be the first thing you say in the morning when you get up. 
Abba, Father. I know I'm shouting, but it's true. I use that story as an example of what God will do. He did for Jehoshaphat, who believed him. He believed in Abraham, just like he talks about us who have faith in Christ, believe in Abraham. We are the true heirs of the promise, the seed of Abraham. Not the Israelites, not the Jews, but those who believe in Christ Jesus. As heirs of God, through Christ, we have received that spirit as a guarantee, right? An earnest, earnest money. When you, when you go put a contract on a house, what do you got to do? You got to put down a little money, right? Got to have some skin in the game to prove that you're not just frivolous, not just signing the document just to do it. That's what the Spirit is. The Spirit has been given to show us that we have a true God, that we have that earnest, that we have that promise that's going to be complete when it's all said and done. Romans 8, 23, the Spirit is but the first fruits. This is the first fruits we have now as heirs of God, as children of God. But we have that promise, that promise of redemption, that purchase possession, that we will receive the ultimate inheritance. Revelations 21 says, when God is with us, when we are with him in eternity. So, I know we're out of time. To seek justification by works of law is to return to being an heir apparent. Simple as that. That's what he's saying. You're still in bondage. You're still a child under a guardian if that's what you're doing. To be justified by an obedient faith in Christ is to become an heir actual. You're now a son of God. You're now receiving that inheritance as a son of God and that promise to be with him forever. Simple as that. It's a simple promise. But it all stems on your faith. Uh, no, I'm not going to lead a song this morning. Simple as that, guys. Abba Father. Recognize him as, as Abba Father, and you will go far. All right. Thanks for being here. Time is up.